Praise for God is like dew or rain. It goes into the soil and it produces things. Now, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembert. I'm Jen. This is the day we study Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's very, very interesting. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today in about five minutes time. In about 20 minutes time, Corey and Ryan are going to show up and tell us some things they're doing. Corey. All right. Well, today I am talking about God's blessings in the promised land for Israel, specifically food and even more specifically bread. <laughs> Ryan. Today I have a special guest to talk about dragons. Why? Well, because the King James Version of the Bible mentions dragons several times. So how should we deal with these biblical references to a seemingly mythological creature? Yeah, that's very, very interesting. A lot of people ask questions about the dragons too. Janice? It's our Friday wrap-up question today. That means anywhere from Deuteronomy 7 all the way up to chapter 34. Hope you're ready. Deuteronomy 32, 1 through 9. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 9. Deuteronomy chapter 32, chapter 33, and chapter 34. That's what we study today. Now, the poetry of the Bible is amazing. And the opening address in Deuteronomy 32 to heaven and earth makes it known that all of creation should listen. You see, what Moses says here is important for the whole world across nations and across time. See, God's word is not just for the religious people. It's for everyone, not just for ancient Israel. God's word speaks to the generation of people living in the end of time. Now, the song of Moses is sung and heard once again in Revelation when the saints are in heaven, Revelation 15, 3. The song contrasts the worshiping of the perfect rock 
who delivered them from bondage against pride, idolatry, false worship. And Moses explains that the purpose of the song, and he explains it at the end, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 to 47. You see, we too are called to live for God and spiritually possess the land to grow in God's kingdom on earth because God is bringing his earth the kingdom. How did we pray? How did Jesus say that we should pray? Do you remember? He said, our father, which art in heaven, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a fascinating prayer. I want to tell you that uh, as we study the Bible, we learn many things. One of the things we're going to learn is the song of Moses today, which is a very important song in Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 9. Take your Bible guide and turn to this page because this is interesting. Now, the Bible is the most important book of all, and we're going through the Bible in one year. So this is very exciting. Father, help us today. Help us today to get a hold of this and help us to take this material and put it in our hearts so we can transform ourselves, so we can change. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray these things. And we said together, you and I, amen and amen. Now, here's the first scripture, 32, 1 to 3. Here's what it says. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth the words of my mouth. Let the teaching drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, as the showers or as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. I want to tell you something that is stunning. What an amazing presentation. Praise God is like the rain or the dew. It produces growth. And that's why God tells us to praise. It produces growth. And today, Christ followers need to grow in the Lord. You know what we need to do? We need to praise the greatness of our God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures and heaven and here below. This is what we need to do. We need to learn to praise the Lord for he is good for his name. He changed us. He saved us. He helped us. And very soon, very soon, we're going to see him again. I want to tell you something. God is great all the time. And all the time, God is great. It's very interesting. So we need to praise the Lord. No matter how we're going through difficult times, no matter what's happening, we need to praise the Lord. Help us to do that Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning with verse 4. Here's what it says. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and a crooked generation. Which brings me to the second point, very important. 
Moses says that Israel will become a people of truth and justice if they follow God. They must follow God. Now, Christ followers or Christians have been grafted into Israel. You see, when we make a decision to become a Christian and we take Jesus Christ as the Lord of our life, we've no choice but to follow God. I want to tell you something. When we do that, God is so pleased. God is so pleased. And Father, help us to follow you. Help us, Lord, to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. We need to remember that. That's important. Now, let's go on because this gets even better. Deuteronomy 32, verse 6 to 9. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who brought you or bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. You see, the third point here is very important. God is looking to place his inheritance among his people. As Christ followers are Christians, we are becoming the inheritance of God. Let me tell you something. There's nothing like that. I am a Christian, so that means that I'm becoming the inheritance of God. Praise God by the power of his Holy Spirit who fills me and floods me every day. And I pray in Jesus' name that he would fill all of us because this is the time that we're seeing change and we're seeing movement and we're seeing challenge. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I'm telling you, things are changing in this world. And you know, we might say, well, it's not good. It's okay, but God is moving <laughs> and God is changing. And I want to tell you something. The more we serve God, the more we give our hearts to the Lord and the more we determine to do the things God's way, the better off we will be. Because here's what I know. I might be killed. I might be. What I know is this. I will be with the Lord. Because he promised me and he promised you. If you love him, if you've taken him as Lord of your life, he will be with you and he will be with me. Right up until the end of the age. <laughs> God is with us, beloved. God is with us in Jesus' name. The Song of Moses tells us that. And so as we look at the Song of Moses, as we read from the Old Testament, from the original Testament, as we read from that, we learn, oh God, it's so great that you are with us today by the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
All right, well, as I mentioned off the top of the program, today I want to talk about dragons. And I know that might seem a little bit strange, but did you know that the King James Version of the Bible mentions dragons several times? As a matter of fact, we find one such reference in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which is a part of our assigned reading today. And while it's true that some of these, dragons ref these dragon references are metaphorical, there are others that are referring to a real creature. And for a lot of people, this is a problem because dragons are mythical creatures, right? Well, to help me out with this one today, I have author, fossil hunter, and explorer Vance Nelson. And this is an interview that I did with him back in 2017 at a conference, but it's just as relevant today. And believe it or not, the mystery of the dragon isn't so mysterious. But in order for us to unravel this mystery, we need to answer another question first, which is this. Are dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? Well, here's Vance. Now, you've done a lot of research into dinosaurs. So let me ask you this. Sure. Where do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? Because the word dinosaur isn't found anywhere in Scripture. Well, it's interesting. Uh, we have a chap uh, from England, no longer with us, Sir Richard Owen. And in 1841, uh, he, he invents the word dinosauria. Of course, we shortened it up to dinosaur. But previous to that, uh, the early geologists were using another word, including Richard Owen himself, and that is the word dragon. And dragon was actually the common word being used by the paleontologists in England. And so when they were talking about dinosaurs, they were simply calling them dragons because that was the common word. It'd be like you and I talking about going fossil hunting for dogs, uh, fossil dogs. And so we'd say, hey, let's go, let's go find some fossil dogs. But once we found those dogs and we had to write about them scientifically and classify them scientifically, we have to come up with some scientific names. So we come up with Canis lupus, Canis familiaris, etc., so we can classify them. And what you find in England is that's precisely what happened. So Richard Owen was still calling them dragons over two decades after he invented the word dinosauria for these dragons. And so dinosauria is actually the scientific word for the dragons. Now, interestingly, we have a gentleman by the name of Thomas Hawkins Esquire that writes a book in 1840, one word before, uh, sorry, one year before Sir Richard Owen invents the word dinosaur. Now, he was actually digging up sea dragons, or marine reptiles, we would call them today, uh, plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs, and he had accumulated 30 of these fossils. And he had pictorial plates, which back then, of course, he didn't just go take out the camera and photograph them. So they had to engrave all of these fossils. And then these engravings basically became like stamps and they stamped them into the book. Well, in 1840, he, he wrote this book called The Book of the Great Sea Dragons. And on the frontispiece, basically in the opening of the book, uh, we have Hebrew writing. Well, why in the world do we have this Hebrew writing? It's because it comes directly out of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, and it's transliterated from the Hebrew into English for us. It says, Gedolim Teninim of Moses. Gedolim Teninim of Moses. Well, Tenin is, of course, dragon. And it comes straight out of Genesis chapter 1. And the King James says, God created the great whales. And, of course, this is the great sea dragons, literally from Genesis chapter 1. So he lifts that right out of Genesis chapter 1. And he says, what are these great sea dragons? These are the creatures that God made in Genesis chapter 1, the great sea dragons. Gedolim Taninim of Moses. 
And so he has these 30 pictures of the fossils he found. Some of them are plesiosaurs, some of them are ichthyosaurs. And then he has all of these plates, these photographs, if you will, of course, engravings back then, of these 30 creatures that he had found. And uh, he has the common word, a dragon from the Leos Shale of Street. Now, not in the middle of the street, but a village known as Street. And then you can take a look at the picture. What is it? Ah, well, hey, this is a, an ichthyosaur, or this is a plesiosaur. And so it's, it's very easy to prove that the early paleontologists were simply calling them dragons. They then classified these dragons, which was the common word, as far as what the scientific classification was. And so the idea that people forgot what these creatures were and then came up with the word dinosaur or dinosauria uh, just simply isn't true. So you can trace this all the way back to the Middle Ages and back further. So when people were talking about dragons in the Middle Ages and they were depicting these dragons, and then you fast forward to the, discover, fast forward to the discovery of the fossils, there never was a time when people forgot what these things were. So dragon was just the old word for dinosaur. And as we know, dinosaurs were very real. So the Bible isn't describing a mythological creature at all. Now, of course, the fact that the Bible describes dinosaurs is also troubling for a lot of people because they've been taught that man and dinosaurs were separated by some 65 million years. And unfortunately, I don't have the time to talk about it right now. But if you want to continue this discussion, then head on over to my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Ryan Hembry, where I've posted my entire interview with Vance in which I ask him that very question. Also, make sure to subscribe and click the notification bell so that you'll be notified when I post new videos. You should also check out Vance's book on this subject called Dire Dragons. And to get a copy, you can go to Vance's website, which is untoldsecretsofplanetearth.com. Untoldsecretsofplanetearth. Wow, what a Dot title. Com. Dot yeah. com. Dot com. All right. <laughs> there you go. All right, Corey? Okay, well, no secret uh, is what humanity loves. We love the simple pleasures in life we always have. We probably always will. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I want to talk about, as we finish off Deuteronomy, some of the blessings that God promised to Israel in the promised land. Uh, and, you know, a couple of days ago in the program, we talked about vineyards and wine and that being a blessing of God. Uh, but something even more fundamental to the human diet uh, is bread. So let's take a look at how ancient Israelites would have created this, and then we'll talk about it after. In the middle of Jesus's famous model prayer, he petitions God to give us this day our daily bread demonstrating quite naturally the ancient importance of this culinary staple. Bread was such an integral part of the ancient Near Eastern diet that the word could be used to mean food in general. Almost as far back as historians can see, bread has been a part of the human diet via wild and cultivated seed. Like today, there were many different ways to make a loaf. First, flour had to be processed different types of grains were used. In ancient Israel, at least two types of wheat were grown. Emmer wheat that required traditional threshing or pounding to get rid of the seed hull, and durum wheat that became more popular because it didn't require threshing. Wheat was grown from November to May, and its harvest was celebrated by the biblical Feast of Weeks. Barley was the other dominating grain of the biblical landscape. As a crop, it was more robust than wheat, tolerating harsher conditions and poorer soil. But it was also viewed as less valuable than wheat. For example, except for in a very specific circumstance, offerings to God were made of wheat flour. 
The heads of wheat and barley could be eaten raw or toasted, but the truly civilized way was to process them into flour. This was most often done by hand on a daily as-needed basis. Dough would then be mixed up with the flour and a liquid, any add-ins like fat, seeds, fruit, or coarser grain, and could be baked right away or leavened. The baking process itself also varied greatly. Dough could be flattened and cooked directly in the coals of a fire. It could be baked on a preheated flat rock or on a large metal circular plate heated over a fire. Ovens were also utilized, dome ovens and tanner ovens being widely attested to. Ancient Egypt has left us the most prolific evidence of bread baking in its pictorial representations, 3D models, and even in the form of ancient loaves themselves. From these, we learn that bread was baked in many different shapes, sizes, and forms. It could be flatbread or leavened bread. It could be shaped by hand into spirals, loaves, or models of other things. It could be stamped or baked in a pottery mold. Potted and molded bread were often baked in dome-type ovens that facilitated the stacking or placing of pots within the heated structure. The walls of tanner-style ovens were used to bake bread that had been slapped onto it. Whatever process was used, it's clear that bread baking quickly became something more than just calorie-based. It was part of a tradition of modifying the natural world, of becoming creators in our own right. It's interesting that this, cross-culturally, was then offered back to God, or the gods as it were, an act of love and devotion. Breaking bread was actually, and symbolically, an act of friendship. So again, you know, when, when we're looking at uh, the, the blessings of God that he was giving to Israel from the natural landscape of the promised land, we have the fruit of the land. I mean, the, the land in Deuteronomy is called the land flowing with milk and honey, milk uh, symbolizing, you know, animals being able to give life to new animals. So there's this fertile land uh, and, and honey, bees honey, and also fruit honey. So we've got this natural sweetness to the land, but then it goes beyond that as well, because now Israel is going to own her own land so that she can farm it. And it always makes me think, I mentioned this a few days ago, but it always makes me think of Psalm 104 verses 14 to 15 because it's talking about God's blessings to Israel and mankind. And it says, God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate. So this idea that we get to participate in God's creation by using the tools that he's given us and this life that he's giving us to create something of sustenance for us. Uh, and the three things that Psalm uh, 104 verses 14 to 15 really draw out are wine, oil, and bread. These three things that were gifts of God to mankind. You know, it's mm -hmm. fascinating because I remember back in 91 when I was in Israel, when mm -hmm. we went to see the Bedouins and all that, because I thought this is going to be amazing, just like they were, you know, ancient in ancient times. And, you know, you eat there and then they go back and there's an electric, like an, a little electric <laughs> stove. And yes. I'm like, what? But, you know, the Israelites or the Israel, the Israelis, modern day Israelis ran water out to these sites and they ran electricity. Yep. And I thought to myself, that's a blessing. Absolutely. I mean, Israel has made it easy for them. And, uh, but to, to eat the bread and all of that from fire with the rocks and the rocks getting hot and that that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Corey, very much for mm -hmm. that. Very interesting. Janice? Bread. 
One of my favorite topics. We have a bread maker, but, you know. I used to be the bread maker, but now it's just nice to put it into a little machine. Push some buttons. Push a button. I hear you. That's great. I hear you. You hear that little beep at the end? Mm -hmm. and Your head smells good. Anyway, it smells great. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, (laughs) we're going to get to the question. Okay. So, here it is. Uh, it, It was focused on Deuteronomy this time. And here's the question. The Israelites were instructed that once they got into the promised land, they were to proclaim blessings and curses from atop specific mountains. Which mountain were they told to put the blessings or to proclaim the blessings from? The proclamation of the blessings. Yes. From which mountain? Mount Ebal, Mount Sinai, or Mount Gerizim? Where were the blessings to be proclaimed? That's a tricky question because of... Anyway. Yes. Because, yes. yes, there's two mountains there's, that they were supposed one to One is do. blessing and one is cursing, That's and both right. of them are listed there. That's yes. exactly right. But uh, we're going to go with number three. Garrison. Mm-hmm. Are you? Yes. All right. Well, For sure. you at home, I wonder what you answered. I'm going to read the verse so that we can see where we're at. We have time. I'm going to read the question again. Okay, sure. The Israelites were instructed that once they got into the promised land, they were to proclaim blessings and curses from atop specific mountains. Which mountain were they told to proclaim the blessing from? Mount Ebal, Mount Sinai, or Mount Gerizim? Here's the answer from Deuteronomy 11, verse 29. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim Mm -hmm. and the curse on Mount Ebal. Mm. Now, a handy way to remember it is Ebal sounds like evil. Ah. And they pronounce the curses from Ebal. As evil. Mm. And Joshua put his altar on Mount Ebal because evil has to be atoned for. Mm, See that? There you go. That's a very good one. Memory device right (laughs) there. Memory device right there. So there you have not only the question, but you have the answer, but you have the way to remember. Yes. Very good. The program is called Beyond the Call. It's a great program of testimonies, the personal interaction of Jesus Christ coming into people and changing them. We've done it for you and we're going to continue to do it. Go to YouTube and look up Pastor Rod Hembry and we'll be there for you. Now let's pray today. Lord, help me to become the person that you have desired me to be. I want to be that person. I need to follow you in Jesus name. Amen.